0: Well, let's read Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Concerning him, <clears throat> that is Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if, God permits. Well, when our oldest daughter Carissa was about a a year old, we took her to see her great grandpa Noel, who lived in downtown San Francisco in a retirement home. And as we brought as I remember, I think she was about nine months old, we brought her into the retirement home. Maybe she was a year, I can't quite remember walking through the retirement home. Of course, you know the response of the residents there, right? They all perk up whenever they see a child and, and saw it. And she became the center of attention. It was there. Everyone was centered on Great Grandpa Noel. And we, we, we propped her up on his lap and took some pictures. And, and one of the, the gentlemen there at the retirement home said this, if that child was smart, she would never grow up. And uh, we laugh, but we know what the man means. He, he knows that the baby is the center of attention. He always wanted to be the center of attention. Well, never grow up because people, especially older people, would always look at her with admiration and joy in their hearts. Now, of course, we know it's silly. No parent has this vision for his children. We, we aim for our children to grow up and mature and eventually to be off on their own. We, we aim for our children to increase in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man like Jesus did. We, we want our children to grow up and be married. We want our children to have children. Right, Phil and Carrie? We want our children to be married. Yes, Karen says yes, yes. And have children so we can enjoy our, our grandchildren. We want them to be mature, be mature and independent. Well, God has so orchestrated life to teach us spiritual realities. Because everything that's true in the physical world, God has created so as to teach us what the spiritual world is about. When God saves a soul, His goal is spiritual maturity. Romans eight twenty nine: For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, God saves us to transform us so that we will be like Jesus. God's aim is to mature us to the point where we are like Him, where we are in the image of Jesus. When Paul thought about the goals of his ministry, he said this in Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. And we proclaim Him, we proclaim Jesus, teaching and admonishing every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. Paul's aim in his ministry was to complete everybody as a mature follower of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians four fifteen it says, "As a church, we are to grow up into all aspects into Him." The aim of God in our conversion is spiritual ministry. The aim of maturity, rather, the aim of ministry is spiritual maturity. And the title of my message this morning is "Spiritual Maturity," it's where we ought to go. It's where we ought to travel upon. Sadly, there are many who aren't there. We don't reach so you, you can look at lots of polls about professing Christians. See how much they know. See how mature they are in their walk with with Christ, and their maturity levels are often across the board pretty far low. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews is acknowledging and recognizing here. Here were Jews mostly who had come to Christ was the audience of what who he was addressing here. They they they. they They'd come into the church anyway. They'd heard of Jesus. And yet, although there may be some initial enthusiasm, they are waffling now and thinking about going back into their Judaism. And the problem is that they're spiritual infants and they haven't become spiritually mature. And So he is pressing them on into maturity. And our text really lays itself out in five questions. And I want to ask you these questions. I want each of you to take this own test and just say, well, am I aiming towards spiritual maturity or am I aiming towards spiritual lethargy or spiritual immaturity? These questions may be hard searching. They may search some of your souls and you may realize, boy, I'm not on the right track where I need to be. And if that is you, I trust you would plea with the Lord to help you get on the right track. For many of you though, I'm sure that these questions will be assuring to you. In chapter 6, verse 9, The writer says, Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. In other words, he's going to say, you all are like infants. You're all needing milk and not meat. You're always in the elementary things. But then he says, but you know what? We are convinced of better things concerning you. As if to say that though this is true of some, it's not true of all. And I trust this morning and hope that this is not true of most of you. But there are some of you I know who need to hear this and need to be convicted of your soul and say, I, I'm not heading on a path of maturity. And may the Lord help you along that path. Here's my first question. i got five questions this morning. How's your hearing? How's your hearing? Verse 11, Concerning him we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. You can almost hear the, the writer's angst in this. He wants to talk about Melchizedek, concerning him, concerning Melchizedek. I I want to tell you about this, but you're not quite ready for what I'm about to tell you. Twice in the previous paragraph, he he brought up Melchizedek, chapter 5, verse 6. He says in another passage, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And I think he wanted to talk about Melchizedek, but he kind of stopped. And then speaks about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears. It's like there's a disjoint there. I think you want to talk about Melchizedek, so you're not ready yet. And then in verse 10, he says, being a high designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And he wants to talk about Melchizedek, but he can't. So he doesn't until chapter 6, verse 20. If you look down there, it says, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he begins in chapter 7 to speak about Melchizedek. He says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. And much of chapter 7 is about Melchizedek. is about how he, his priesthood is better than all the Levitical priests. How, how he's, a, he's a forerunner of Jesus and how great and glorious this Melchizedek is. But... You can't have much to say about Melchizedek until he first checks and challenges the readers to make sure that they are there. And, and there is much to say about Melchizedek, and when we get there, we will say much, but today is not the day, and now is not the time, because it wasn't his time for the writer of the book of Hebrews. We need to face a matter before we think about Melchizedek. Here it is. We need to face the matter of your spiritual maturity, my spiritual maturity, Look at verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say. It's hard to explain. The things of Melchizedek are hard to explain. We get to chapter 7. They're hard. They're not easy to explain. But notice what makes it difficult to explain. It's not so much the content of Melchizedek as it is the state of the listeners and the readers. Look at what he says. He says, It is hard to explain since or because... Here's the reason why it's hard to explain. Because you have become dull of hearing. It's not that Melchizedek in and of itself is so hard. It's because your ears are hard. I don't think you can hear it. As we prepare for Hebrews 7, are you prepared? How's your hearing? Are you quick to hear, as James 1.19 says? Or are you dull of hearing? I had a slight illustration of this this past week. We've been given... The deans gave us... uh, Are you you here, Chuck? I thought I was... There you are. The deans gave us this princess tent. um, And Steffi loves it. If you know anything about Steffi, she loves princesses. It's about four feet in uh, diameter. It's about four feet tall. It's got an opening here. And... um, Avon was particularly swamped this past Wednesday and called me in from my office and says, Steve, could you please come and put David to bed for a nap? I said, sure. And i looking around the house for him. I go up into his room, open the door, didn't, didn't see him, but I heard him. And so I walk over to this tent and find him down in this princess tent playing with his little people toys. And he's kind of talking, you know how a little boy talks, go in house, where are you? You know, and he's talking like this. And I'm watching him for 20 seconds, and then I say, and he's kind of talking around, totally oblivious. And I was about that loud. I said, David. And I had to get louder and louder. I said, David. 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 He's totally oblivious. All engaged in this twice. Finally, I had to say it about this a I said, David. And he's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. oh, you know, totally oblivious. that I was listening to him. But that's a picture of, of hardness of heart. Dullness of hearing. That, that we're so engaged in the things of this world that we can't hear God's voice. God is speaking, but we become dull. We can't even hear it. Now, the idea here, though, is not necessarily volume, loudness, as much as is ready to hear. The idea here is, is that you become dull of hearing. You're not listening and you're not quickly responding with obedience. The idea here is that the readers were sluggish in their hearing. The, this word occurs in chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 12. He says in verse 11, "...we desire each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish." There it is. "...so that you will not be dull, but you'll be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." In other words, you will be quick to obey. That's what's being addressed here. People hear the Word, perhaps, but they don't understand They're slow to learn, as the NIV says. Excellent translation. Dull appearing. You're just slow. You you know, the the end comes comes in and you just can't can't process it. I I remember (laughs) we used to tease my sister. It's probably a mean thing to do, but it was a very funny thing to do. Is that um, we used to tease her that she had a 386 processor going on in her mind. You know, because we would sometimes tell her jokes and she'd go like, and then laugh 15 seconds later. <laughs> we always imagine, you know, going, Oh, now I get it. And uh, it was a pretty fun thing to do with her. And it was all in brotherly love, I'm sure. But that's what's happening here. These people are, are getting the information in and they're just chugging through on their 3 to 6 but never spitting anything out. Never really getting it. Never understanding the sad thing here is that they grew into this state. The word in the Greek text, gegonata, implies a change that's take place. They have become dull of hearing. It's not that they are dull of hearing. It's that they have become dull of hearing. At one point, they were eager listeners, learning well, but over time, they became sluggish in their hearing. And now came to a point in time where they weren't hearing very well at all. A little bit like the plant that sprouts up for joy of the message years and, and is rejoicing. But then when the worries of the world come, they fall away. That's the fear here, is that people, as, as the worries of the world come, or as, as weeds come up and choke them, they're, just, they're not listening anymore to the voice of God. They're not responding to Him and falling away. Over time, they become increasingly hardened to all the things taught. They become disinterested and dull. It's a, it's a little bit like what took place on Paul's first missionary journey. When he traveled the city in Antioch, he, he went there and he proclaimed Christ and there in the synagogue and the Jews were all excited about it. They said, hey, come back next Saturday and teach us again in the synagogue. This is excellent. And then the next Saturday they came, the next Sabbath, and, and the whole town was assembled to hear what, what's Paul going to say. And the Jews, when they saw the Greeks, became jealous and indignant and became hard of hearing and then resisted Paul and his ministry, eventually kicking him out of town. At that point, their heart was quickly hardened. They wouldn't hear the gospel. Instead, they instigated the persecution. And so I just say this How's your hearing? Are you slow to learn or are you quick to hear? Spiritual maturity is reached by being quick to hear. My second question is this How's your teaching? How's your hearing? How's your teaching? Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God and you've come to need milk and not solid food. The idea here isn't that everybody should become official teachers in the church to to stand up and proclaim God's Word before the entire congregation. That's a matter of giftedness and calling. But the idea here is that all of us to one degree or another, ought to be teachers. That's what he's calling them to be here in verse 12. To those who don't know Christ, we need to be teachers. We need to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks for the hope that is within us. We need to be proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light to the world, to those outside the church. We are called to be teachers to each other in the church. Paul said in Colossians 2.16, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. God's God's Word is in us. The Word of Christ there. And we ought to be, after church meets, teaching and admonishing one another and talking with each other as God's Word has been in us and we're turning it around and teaching it. It's the best way to learn. It's the best way to hear is to put it out again. We're called to be teachers in our families. The the call to Israel is the call to us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These words which I'm commanding you today, God says, shall be on your hearts. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Binding them as a sign on your hand, as frontals on your forehead writing them on the doorposts of your house and all your gates. Listen, all of us parents are called to be teachers of our children, actively engaged in teaching them. We're called to be just like Eunice who taught God's Word to Timothy. So whether it's those outside the church, whether it's those inside the church, whether those inside our family, we are called to be teachers. And I just say, how's your teaching? Right? Like, like, what are you saying? Are you a teacher? The writer was expecting these Hebrews to be, it says in verse 12, you can, almost, you can translate this, yes, indeed, by this time you ought to be teachers. He was expecting them to have, have been Christians for a sufficient amount of time that they would, they would be teaching, that they would be mature by this time. It begs the question, how long a time should it be from conversion to teaching? Well, my answer is this, right away. Whatever you know, you ought to give out. Uh, perhaps you remember the story of the garrison demoniac that Jesus healed. This demoniac was living by the tombs. He was bound with shackles and chains sometimes, but somehow he always got loose. He was screaming among the tombs, in the mountains, gnashing himself with stones. And, and yet Jesus, in a miraculous moment, met this man, found out he had a legion of demons in him, cast out these legion of demons, and soon afterwards this man was clothed, which was unusual for this man, because he was insane, running about naked among the tombs, and he was in his right mind, sitting and listening to Jesus. The whole city saw that and were amazed and were fearful at the power of Jesus to convert this man. Jesus then said, okay, we've got to go back over the shore to Galilee again, um, up to the uh, northern side of the sea we're going to go, and the, this man begged, can I come with you, Jesus? And listen to what Jesus said. Mark 5.19 Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. Here was a man insane and out of control, was saved, and that very day Jesus called him to be a teacher. When David repented of his sin and his confession, he pledged, And I will teach transgressors your ways, O Lord, and sinners will be converted to you. The moment of repentance became a moment to be a teacher. And I just say that we ought to be teachers, any of us who are converted who love Jesus. As I quoted before, 1 Peter 2.9, we are a people for God's own possession, so that, here's the purpose of why God has taken us to Himself, so that we may proclaim His excellencies, of Him who's called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. In other words, so thrilled at what Christ has done for our souls, we can't stop talking about it. That's what it means to be a teacher. Whatever you read in, whatever you take in, speak about them. And I just know in life it works this way. If you're particularly excited about something, you'll find within you a desire to have someone else be excited about as well. You'll find within you a, a passion to speak about the things that's captured your heart. I think of the Olympics. Any of you been watching the Olympics at all? Okay. Most of you, some of you, maybe not. That's okay. Um, probably good for you if you are one of those who haven't been watching. But if you've been watching, you might just be able to say, Oh, I saw Apollo Ono get his seventh medal last night. Or you might say, um, Dora Bright, the Australian, won the women's halfpipe. And that was, that was so cool. Or you might say something like, um, women's hockey. U.S. 13-zip over the Russian Federation. I think they're going for the gold. Or you might say Chinese figure skaters, four years ago they crashed, and this year they got the gold. Or you might say something like the, the Canadian women's curling team is undefeated. Yay, right? Canadian women's curling. Elsie's from Canada, so I'm sure about that. Looking like they're going for the gold. And you can, you can just think about all these things that you've seen. Well, the same is true. In the Christian life, the more you know about your salvation, from your conversion on, you have to be excited about it and let it, let it flush out to whatever degree you know. So how's your teaching? Do you speak with others freely about Christ, the things you're learning in the Bible? Or are you mostly silent? So what comes into you is what's going to come out of you. you. You just watch what people talk about and what they talk about is the thing that's going inside of them. Guess how God's made us? And the more you dwell on Christ, the more you dwell on God, the more you dwell on His Word, the truth about that, that will come out of you. And the sad reality here, the right of the Hebrews, is that those who received the words weren't teachers. Instead, they needed someone else to teach them even the most elementary things. It's like they never got past kindergarten. You know, whatever, kindergarten came around, and at the end of kindergarten, the teacher evaluated them and said, hmm, I don't think you're ready for first grade. Let's put you back in kindergarten. You need to learn those things again. And so they learned the ABCs again and again and again. How painful would that be to be in kindergarten again? It's a reality of many, though professing Christians who need to learn their spiritual ABCs year after year after year just looking again at the elementary principles of the oracles of God. What a sad thing. Well, let's go to the next question. How's your hearing? How's your teaching? Third question, how's your diet? How's your diet? Last half of verse 12. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk... Is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. When I asked my two-year-old two and a half-year-old son David, David, are you a baby? Do you know what he says? No, not a baby. We did this the other night at dinner. I said, David, are you a baby? He said, No. I said, David, I think you're a baby. He said, No. I said, David, I think you're a baby. No. I'm not sure any child likes being called a baby. They want to grow up. They don't want to be babies. They want to be boys and girls. And I think that's true of adults as well. Which one of you like to be called a baby? I don't think any of us do, but that's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. He says, you guys are babies. You can be fed everything from spoons. And he gets at this by using a metaphor of food. Verse 12, you see that. You've come to need milk and not solid food. <clears throat> and there's the comparison. Milk and solid food. And you all know this. It's easier to digest milk. You just drink it down. Your stomach works pretty easily. Pretty tame on the stomach. Well, solid food is a little more hard. Difficult. I mean you gotta chew it first. It gets into your stomach and it's gotta digest and break it down. But listen, solid food is necessary for maturity. But when we're an infant, we need milk so that we can grow up to the point where we need solid can take solid food into our systems. And spiritually speaking, there are things that are like milk. And there are things that are like solid food. Things that are like milk. I think about fluffy devotionals, inspirational stories, simple application, easy short sermons. It's kind of milk. Spiritually speaking, there are things that are like solid food which require a bit more work to digest, say some doctrinal studies or studies of particular books of the Bible. Challenging applications, stronger sermons, that's more substantial. But the great reality is this, you can't live your Christian life on milk alone. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with milk. There's a place for an inspirational story and for a a devotional and a simple application. Just as those things nourish an infant, so we also drink milk as well at our dinner table, and that helps us, and that's fine and good. But you can't live on milk alone. You need, you need to grow on more than that. And that's the point of verse 13, when the metaphor is applied to life. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. There are spiritual babies who take only in milk. As a result, they're not used to the word of Righteousness. It actually is kind of detestable to them. Have you ever seen a child eating solid food for the first time? I can't remember specific about any of our five children, but I I have a general feeling about how it went. Yvonne whipped up some rice cereal, you know, kind of a milky thing with just a little bit of substance in there and uh, took a little bit of spoon and, and shoved it in the mouth and saw what they could do. it. And oftentimes, you know, sometimes there's a... Never tasted that before. A lot of times it just kind of spits back out because they don't know how to take it from the front to the back to swallow it. But a lot of times they're like, what have you put in my mouth? This is totally strange to me. I'm not supposed to eat this. Boom, you know, and it it comes back out. Not wanting it at all. And that's the picture of this verse. It's a spiritual babe who hears hears the word of righteousness and they, they don't know what to do with it. It's like strange to them. They've never tasted it before. And much of it never gets in. Much of it is just spit out and rejected. Why? Because he's not accustomed to it. He's not used to it. He's not been trained in it. He's an infant. doesn't like it. And there are many professing Christians who can endure only milk. When they hear solid food, practically, they have no interest in it. They're like Peter Pan who said, I won't grow up. I'm... I'm not going to school. I'm just staying a boy. That's the idea, really, of our of our text, right? That the author wants to go in the deeper things of Christ, telling of the priesthood of of Melchizedek is so much more glorious than the Levitical priesthood. He wants to explain the priesthood of Melchizedek is far better than those of the Levites, and that Melchizedek is a priest forever, and so is Christ, and wants to tell him those things, but fears that it will just fall on deaf ears because they're not ready to listen to it. He fears he can't delve into those things because of the spiritual state of his listeners who are accustomed only to milk. They're going to reject this word of righteousness. But the writer wants to get into the solid food, which is for the mature. That's what verse 14 says. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The mature are those who have stretched themselves to understand. They've trained. In fact, the, the Greek word here for because of practice is gymnazo, from which we get gymnasium. They have trained just like any Olympic athlete trains. They, they place themselves in difficult, stretching circumstances so they'll be forced to grow and mature. And thus they've come to know the weightier matters of the things of God because they've pushed themselves to understand the word of righteousness. And so the question comes to you and it comes to me, how's your diet? How's your diet? When you reflect upon the things you've eaten this past week, how's it fair? You drinking just Milk? Get some solid food this week. What did you read this past week? Spiritually edifying, encouraging to you. What did you listen to this past week? Did you read your Bible this past week? Did Did you dive into any substantial books this week? Did you listen to any solid teaching this week? Have you tuned in to listen to somebody, what they're saying? Listen, my heart aches this morning as a pastor because I know there are some of you this week who did not open your Bible. Left it, put it home. We got it from church, home from church, put it there. And this morning you picked it up at the same place and came here. There are some of you who took nothing in of God this week. Some of you didn't even drink any milk. Didn't even get that far. And you wonder why you're stagnant in your Christian life. I know why you're stagnant. You're not eating anything. The way of growth is to drink the milk. The way of growth is to eat the solid food. Paul used this imagery in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he spoke to the Corinthians. He said, So I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you are still fleshly. There's sin there that that prevented that intake. But notice here, he's not talking about doctrinal discernment. We're not talking about theology, getting it straight here. Rather, he's talking about moral discernment. Look at the end of verse 14. They have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It doesn't say that they have their senses trained to discern truth from error. Because fundamentally, the issue with these Hebrew people wasn't an academic theological issue. It was a moral problem, like those in Corinth who were fleshly. It's because of their fleshliness. They're living for themselves that they weren't able to eat the solid food. So there, there are plenty of theologians out there who know the Hebrew, know the Greek, who know all the historical theology, can tell you the, the thrust and theme of every book of the Bible. They can tell you the claims of Christ, they can argue the, the pros and cons of Christianity, and when it comes down to it, they can't grasp what's right or wrong. They struggle over the issue of abortion, whether abortion's right or not. There are people like that who know everything. Who who argue that homosexuality is acceptable. It's like it's not. Your learning has clouded your thinking. And then there are simple folk who work hard for a living by no means scholars that, but have bra- embraced the realities of Christ and can spot good and evil a mile away. Easily discern when others have been walking the wrong track. You know what I think, Nancy Weeby? I think of your dad when I think about this. A simple man, growing up. Yeah, Was he born here as immigrant parents? Something like that, so I remember. He born here, not His education was how high? eighth grade education, and yet he was a man of God who knew and discerned much. A simple man. So it's not a matter of intellect. It's a matter of moral growth and following and trusting the Lord. And The, the original readers were in danger of not knowing good and bad. They're waffling, thinking about, oh, this religious system, right? These, these uh, sacrifices and ceremonies. They're, they're good. No, they're not good since Christ has come. Stay away from them. They weren't making any progress in their faith. Which leads to our next point. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. How's your progress? How's your progress? I've heard it said many times before that in the Christian life, you either march forward or you slip backwards. Either there's progression in your Christian life or there is regression in your Christian life. There's not any middle ground. You can't stand still. Remember that life is like a river. If you're standing still, you're drifting away. You can't swim and stay in the same place. You're you're moving upstream or you're moving downstream. We're like trees. We either grow or we die. In the call of chapter 6, a call for growth. It's a call for progress in the faith. We read, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us... Press on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of six things. Repentance from dead works. Faith toward God. Of instructions about washings. And the laying on of hands. Of the resurrection of the dead. And eternal judgment. The call here is a press on to maturity. It's a call to go beyond merely milk drinkers. It's the theme of, of Hebrews, right? Jesus is better So press on. Your faith. In verses one and two, the writer is saying there's some elementary things in the faith that you need to resolve and just set aside. Say, <laughs> so, Yes, I resolved that. I, I know what I believe about that. I know what I believe about repentance from dead works. I, I know about my faith in God. I don't need to be taught again about washings. I know what the laying on of hands are. I know the resurrection of the dead. I know what eternal judgment is. And get those things, resolve them in your mind, and press on. That's not that you don't ever go back and revisit them or think about them, but you don't ever question them because they're solid in your faith. But these readers were questioning these things. so like, can, can, you, can you tell us again about these washings? How, how, how do they fit again? Okay, let's go over it again. Or how is it this laying on our hands actually works? All right, let's go over it again. <clears throat> the resurrection, is that is that really true? How, how does that work? Like, All right, we'll go over it again. He says, no, 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 don't. Put it aside. Figure it out. Go confirm strong in your heart and press on. That's why we're supposed to leave them behind. Let's just think about each of these six elementary teachings, which are also, by the way, chapter... 5 verse 12. These are the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Not exhaustive, but just some of them. Repentance from dead works. I think these mostly have to do with reference to the dead works of Judaism. The washings, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the holy days. The dead works which in and of themselves do nothing, but they point us to Christ. There may just be some dead works in your life that you're clinging onto to. Some, some religious traditions that maybe you cling to. You, see, you maybe need to say, you know what, that's not so important. A, a certain way of how you pray. A certain place where you have to go. Some kind of experience. It's not. It's belief. It's faith in Christ. Maybe there's some evil deeds you need to repent from. Which maybe this is talking about as well. Like dead things. Your sinful things. Resolve that. Repent. Faith in God is the second one. Uh, I think the issue here for the original readers was a belief in God and His Word. They'd not resolved in the heart whether they're going to believe God or not. God had said that it, it's in Christ Jesus that you have access to me. And they were like, hmm, is Jesus really God? Is my access really there? He said, yes, believe God and His Word. Settle it in your heart and your minds. And the call comes to us as well. Do you believe in God? Do you trust Him? You know, this is brand of Christianity that's always in a state of limbo. People ask, "Well, have I believed or not? Have I repented of my sin or not?" And they they look over the life for the past six months and say, "Well, sort of, I have." Been. And then a preacher comes into town and calls them up to an aisle to rededicate their lives. And so, yeah, I'm going to rededicate my life. Yep, I'm going to believe in God. And so they rededicate their life and wonderful. And six months later, they're at the same place again. Oh, man, my li- am I believing in God? My life doesn't look like it. Well, maybe I do, but... But this preacher's coming down. I'm going to come forward again. I'm going to rededicate my life. I'm going to get at it again. And another six months later, they're in the same place again. Or they go to some conference or they rededicate their life. What he's saying is stop the rededication. Let's just believe and press on. Put that in the past. You're going back to the elementary things again and again and again and again. Resolve it now. Trust in Christ. Trust in God and press on. Third elementary teaching here is washings. as it says here in verse 2. They may be referring to the purification ceremonies that Jews were used to. Yeah, They washed themselves for everything. Um, before they ate, they washed themselves ceremonially. After they ate, they washed themselves ceremonially. Before they came to the temple, it's interesting, if you go to Jerusalem, there are these things called the mikvahs, which are big baths where they would wash and they would go in and they'd wash themselves before they went up to the temple to worship. And and I, I think somewhat may be happening here is the writer saying... You don't need to take a bath before coming to church. As R says, Hallelujah! <laughs> you don't, you're not, it's not a matter of cleanliness on the outside. We will love you just the same. Well, maybe, maybe not quite so much. But we will, we will love the inner man, which is being renewed day by day, right? It's the inner cleansing. It's not the external cleansing. So, so you don't have to be washed externally before you come. So that may, may be there, but you know what? I, I, I think that may have led to some other questions. That he's saying listen, it's not through that; it's through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ who've been cleansed once for all. The literal word here about washings is baptismon, was baptizing. So questions about baptism, and I think there could be confusion easily in the early church. So what, what's the baptism about? There's John the Baptist baptized, and then your disciples, Jesus baptized, and. Jesus didn't baptize. But then the church baptized upon profession of faith. And then, and then there's a spirit baptism. How is it? Do I, do I need to keep being baptized? Does the spirit need to keep baptizing me? And I think they missed the, 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 all these washings, the baptisms once. It's upon profession of faith. I'm, God, I'm, I'm symbolically being washed clean and the, the spirit comes upon us once. A conversion, it's not again and again and again. We need to be washed again like the Jew, Jewish religion was it's once for all. Also, we need to leave behind simple things, it says in verse 2 of laying on of hands. The Old Covenant priests would lay their hands upon the animals as a ritual, symbolically, of taking the, the sin confessed, putting it on the animal, and then sacrifice the animal before God. In the New covenant, we can't place our hand upon Jesus and upon the cross and say, Whoa, here's where my sins are being imparted. It's impossible. He's in heaven now. It's by faith that we believe in Him." And, and maybe there was some question about that, Well, how is sin transferred then? Does it need to lay on hands? I don't know. Or maybe they had questions about in the New Testament when various instances, people laid hands upon each other. they laid hands on church leaders, like in Acts chapter six verse six, when the, the, the men came alongside to help in the serving of tables. They placed their hands on them and commended them to God and prayed. Or Timothy, in his ordination, the presbytery, laid their hands upon him, and imparted some spiritual gift to him. They laid hands upon new converts so they might receive the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, verse 17, I think as the Jews were always seeking for signs, I think here's another thing. Well, do I need to have hands laid on me to get some spiritual power? Is that, is that what I'm lacking? Nobody's laid hands on me. Do I need this? What about you've laid hands on other people? What about about this? And I think that they are just asking these questions rather than just saying, listen, you don't need to seek something else in your life through some special laying on of hands. Just believe in Christ. You don't need special spiritual power. You have all the spiritual blessings in Jesus. So believe in Him. But I think they kept going back. Well, maybe it's because of this. He says, no, it's not the laying on of hands. We need to get beyond the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. verse 2. You know, it's not surprising that Jews of the first century had difficulties with the resurrection. When you look to the Old Testament and say, where does the Old Testament teach the resurrection? You'd be shocked to find not very many places. Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, Exodus 3.14, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was, saying to Abraham... 600 years after Abraham existed, I am. He's still alive. He's still in my presence. That's Jesus' argument. The whole idea about a king upon the Davidic throne forever begs the resurrection because the only way that's going to happen is if you have a king that lives forever. So it was vague in the Old Testament and the Pharisees and Sadducees were like this. The Sadducee says, no resurrection. The Pharisee says, yes, resurrection. And they're going back and forth and so it's typical for a Jew to be unclear in his mind is the resurrection really happened? I mean the church in Corinth were confused about the resurrection but the writer the book of Hebrews says this the resurrection is simple and straightforward Jesus raised bodily from the dead we too will be raised from the dead when Jesus comes back any questions that's one of the elemental teachings of the Christian hope is there's a resurrection from the dead now certainly there's mystery there and we'll talk about that on Easter morning but you don't have to go back again and again questioning, trying to understand did the resurrection really happen? Is, is the resurrection really crucial? So we will live again. Believe it, embrace it, and press on. Sixth, the eternal judgment. Because they're at the end of verse 2. And again, I think this is tied to the resurrection. The Jews had a very temporal look at life. They didn't think much of the afterlife. And with no resurrection, no judgment. But with resurrection comes Judgment to resolve the resurrection issue and the judgment issue comes. And I just say, resolve it in your mind. Jesus said this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him and He sits on His glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. The goats will go away to eternal punishment but the sheep into eternal life. Sounds like eternal judgment to me. And if Jesus says it, resolve it in your mind that there's a judgment that's going to have eternal consequences forever. You'll either be with the sheep with Christ forever or you'll be with the goats forever. Don't waffle in that. Believe that. Embrace it. You don't have to be taught much more about that. Now, certainly delve into it. I mean, I've I've been thinking of Revelation. I've been... Revelation 20 speaks about the great white throne. and been think about what the great white throne means. I've been memorizing that chapter and thinking think about what it means. You can delve into that, but it's not an issue in my mind about whether the judgment throne exists or not. So we don't need to bring that up or not. Accept it, it's true. Believe it. Press on to maturity. So how's your progress? Do you have a question about any of these things? Are these resolved in your mind? Can, can you say this? I've repented of my sins... My works of righteousness and my evil deeds, I've re- I've turned from them and renounced them. Can you say, I believe in God as He has expressed Himself in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for my sins. Can you say, I know it is not by external washings or the laying on of hands that I'm justified or made more holy. Can you say that I'm looking forward to this resurrection? Can you say that I know that my faith in Christ will allow me to stand at the judgment seat because it's His righteousness that I've received by faith alone. I can stand. Can you say those things? Those are simple, elementary teachings. And if you can't, I'd recommend you resolve them in your minds and press on to maturity. Well, I have one last point. i got five minutes left, and this will work out just great. Is God at work? Verse 3. Is God at work? And this we will do, he says in verse 3, If God permits, what will we do? We will press on to maturity. We will press on in our Christian faith. We will lay aside those things if God permits. Puts the entire section here under the realm of the sovereignty of God, which has been in the background. You can't say this. You can't say this. Wow, I'm dull of hearing. I need to perk up and listen. And, and by my strength, I'm going to start listening to God and His Word. can't say that. You, you can't say, that's it. I'm resolved. I'm going to start make God's Word, what I'm learning, the topic of all my conversations right now. And I'm going to do that. can't say that. You can't say, all right, that's it. I'm, res- I'm going to start eating meat. Get me the, give me the commentaries back there. Give me the systematic theologies. I'm going home. I'm going to read this all. <clears throat> you can't say that. You can't say, okay, these foundational things, I'm going to set them aside. I'm going to resolve them in my mind. And I'm going to go on and do it my own strength. I'm going to do it. You can't say that. For any of those things to happen, it has to be because God permits it to happen. Uh, this past week, Tiger Woods made a public confession of his infidelity. And uh, maybe some of you read it or saw it. Um, I, I watched the whole thing, read the transcript. And um, you may have noticed if you read that. If not, you don't need to listen to it. You need, don't need to watch it. But here's what's interesting. is, um, is He said he was sorry again and again and again, which is good. I appreciate that. But his solution to the problem was all in himself. Here's some quotes he said. He says, it's now up to me to make amends. It's up to me to start living a life of integrity. I know above all, I'm the one that needs to change. I owe it to my family to become a better person. I owe it to those closest to me to become a better man. That's where the focus of my life will be. I want to ask you for help. I want you to find room in your heart to one day believe in me again. And I say, he missed it. I preach his attempts, but his approach is all wrong. He thinks it all lies within himself. And you might think that too. You might think that, well, right, my, my understanding all lies within me. I can hear. Or, or you might think that the ability for me to even speak God's word all lies in me. Or, or, or you might think that, um, boy, my diet is just what I take in and what I can understand. Or you might think I can leave. The, you can't unless God permits it to happen. Our hearing will be only good if God permits. Our teaching will only take place if God permits. Our diet will only consist of solid food if God permits. And our progress will only take place if God permits. So what do we need to do? We seek the Lord for help in these things. Permit it, please, Lord, we pray. I have one final story. In recent days, since the Olympics, we've configured one of our computers to be able to watch television from our computer and our laptop. And uh, it's been it's been pretty fun. We've watched the Olympics on our, our laptop. It's really amazing. We can carry this laptop around with, with no power cord plugged in, getting the signal from Wi Fi and kinda walking around the our house and just watching. So so last night, Yvonne and I are going to bed and uh, we spend a few moments watching the Olympic Games. And uh I just commented about, it's amazing. We've got this laptop and we're here in bed and we're watching the Olympics. This is like amazing. This is great. And uh, I told her how convenient it was, I told her how nice it was, and this is wonderful. <clears throat> anyway, we're watching late last night, if you you can backtrack, see how late we were. We're up pretty late. But anyway, we're watching Apollo Ono racing the short track, seeking to get his seventh medal on American record. And uh, after a few races, I said, Avon, we Ono oh, is racing his last semifinal race. We've got to watch that, and then we'll go to bed. We won't have time to watch the finals tonight, but we'll watch that. And uh, this will be the last race that we watch. And if he's on top, then he goes to the finals. Here, let's just watch this one last one and, and go to bed, okay? And she said, okay, we'll, we'll go to sleep after that. And the race was seven laps around the short track. Be over in about a minute and a half or so and uh, start the race, typical of Apollo style. He starts off in third place and after a few laps, he jumps into second place. And, and I, We probably watched him about five times around and then our battery stopped on our laptop. <laughs> Boom! Black screen last night. And we're like, oh. go. <laughs> if God permits. All right? We make our plans. God directs our steps. We planned. We're gonna watch this race. And I'm telling you, it was like 30 seconds later, we were shutting the laptop, and God says, I want to give you a good illustration for tomorrow. And he shut it down right there at that time. And uh Yvonne said, well, I guess you can go downstairs and look up to see how he did. And I said, no, we're just going to bed. This is a message from God. We need to hear God, right? A message from God. We just put it away. Without a power cord, it was impossible for us to watch the end of the race. The power cord was downstairs. We were warm and cozy in bed, inside so I just know. And I just say this, though, such may be the case with your life. You might be thinking, well, you know what? I'm not listening real well. I'm not teaching very well. I'm not eating very well. I'm not making very well progress. But you know what? After the race, in another few months, after this, then I will. And I just say, be warned, church family, be warned. Our section next week speaks that there is a point you can reach to that it is impossible to be renewed again under repentance. You can reach that line where God says, nope, I don't permit it any longer. Let's never presume upon God in matters of repentance. Resolve today, as you hear His voice, today, 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 to seek Him and His help to become spiritually mature. And I just say this, may God permit it so that we might press on to spiritual maturity. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for every single one of us in this room. We are all in different places in our spiritual maturity. Some of us are going forth like gangbusters and in that, oh Lord, I rejoice. Some of us have been steadily prodding forward for years and in that, I rejoice. So I gone back and forth, but mostly have, have continued on to press forward to maturity in that, I rejoice. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would catch, though, the thrust of this passage. It's not up to us. It's not up to us, God. So I pray and I plead that you would permit us to press on to spiritual maturity, that you would conform us to the image of your Son. I pray as a pastor that I might present these people here complete in Christ on that final day. May we grow up as a church into a mature man, being unified walking rightly, building up the body as each individual member does his part. It's not us, God. It's not to us. It's To your name be glory and please I pray you'd work among us, stir us on into maturity. I pray you'd give us strength as we think about the passage next week, what a terrible, awesome reality may face some even in this room who have seen so much and heard so much, experienced so much and have tasted the kindness of the Lord and have presumed upon you and you have said, I'm not permitting you. May we not be like Esau who sought repentance with tears but was unable to find it. May you help us, O oh Lord, this morning to be quick to hear. Oh God, we need your strength. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.